Hey everyone, welcome to Wisecracks Movie Podcast that we haven't named yet. My name is Jared, I'm joined here by Wisecracks video editor Ryan. Hello film fans. And one of Wisecracks writers, researchers, and directors Austin Schmidt. Hey, hey. And we have another special guest today. Um, but before I introduce the special guest, it probably makes sense for us to introduce what movie we're doing today. So uh, as our second uh, foray into movie podcasting, we decided more or less arbitrarily to do the 2011 Nicholas Winding Refn movie Drive. And I promise this isn't why we chose it, but a fun piece of Wisecrack trivia is that the man who created and designed the Wisecrack logo is also the man who created the poster for Drive. And for a movie that is so much based on style and aesthetic, it would I just thought, wow, it would be so cool to have him here giving us his insights on the movie. So I want to welcome a graphic designer extraordinaire, Devin Gibbs. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Welcome. So one of the things about uh, when you love movies, I think, is that so much of how you react to a movie is based on the circumstance and the situation. And sometimes you watch a movie once in a particular setting or in a particular time of your life, and it really resonates with you and it really affects you very profoundly. And then perhaps you revisit it and you feel a little bit different about it. And I think that that's one of the nice things about Picking Drive is because I personally had not seen it probably in about four years or so. Um, so first I want to go around and see how people reacted to this most recent viewing and how it if it differed at all from when you first saw the movie so let's go ahead and start with ryan well love this movie first off um the first time i saw it it was like a year i I say after we had moved to la we moved out me and jared moved together into la in 2010 and then this is a super la movie obviously so it was i definitely noticed this time when i just watched it now at six seven years later like oh wait i know that street or hey they're in my neighborhood now so i was i did that whole thing <laughs> for this viewing um which was fun on a personal level but uh from, but just from the movie i mean it's going to be interesting this conversation uh, because there this movie is pretty sparse you know there's it's very like you said stylistically driven aesthetic driven uh, uh, the soundtrack is a huge part of this movie that almost drives the film i'd say no pun intended uh <laughs> but but yeah it's a very either you know it's all style very little substance I'd okay say, but not in a bad way at all love the movie okay cool austin what about you I fucking love this movie so much, man. I, I, yeah, it just keeps climbing up for me. I've seen it seven, eight, I don't even know how many times now. Oh, wow. Um, I'm a huge Refn fan. I even love the films that get maligned, like Neon Demon and Only God Forgives, um, as well as his earlier films as well. The first time I saw this, I saw it in a theater in Dundee, Scotland, at this little museum kind of an art house cinema called the Dundee Contemporary Art Museum and I saw it with a friend of mine Natalie and we walked out and I I don't think I had ever seen a film that elicited that type of reaction it was this it was almost like nostalgic but not nostalgic just with this sort of synth pop soundtrack and the pink lipstick writing and the whole thing is just all about L.A. is almost the main character, really. Like L.A. Right. is kind of the protagonist, you know. Um, and there were two films that I saw kind of around the same season. It was This and Shame, both uh, with Carrie Mulligan, interestingly enough. And I remember both of them I saw The City as sort of like standing out as as a protagonist type of character, you know, with New York being shame and and, and L.A. with drive. And uh, in, in with this viewing, my seventh or eighth or ninth or tenth, I don't even fucking know anymore. I fucking love this movie. It is style, um, but 
there is substance in style. I was just listening to a lecture by Slavoj Žižek, and he talks about how um, when you press form to the limits, that form itself becomes content. And I feel like that, that that's what you get in this film. When you press aesthetics to the limit, style is the substance. And that's what I love about mm. Ruffin so much. You, you know, this I, I probably should take back the style over substance thing. It was more just, yeah. It's hey, an I, don't th I, don't think, I don't think you're saying that, you know, the movie is disappointing in its lack of substance. It's just that the style is a more defining characteristic, yeah. at least yeah. on the surface. The, totally. the execution is the DNA of this film. Right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and uh, Austin, uh, when we so I, I want to get uh, Devin's thoughts real quick, but I don't want to forget that it's interesting that so Austin now lives in Ireland, but he grew up in L.A., whereas uh, whereas Ryan and I did not grow up in L.A. And did you grow up in L.A., Devin? I grew up close. Yeah. OK, so he grew up close to L.A. And so I'm interested to see how, you know, how that affected our uh, your viewing experiences hmm. having Especially since it sounds like, uh, Austin, you were already living abroad when you saw it for the first time. So I'm curious to see if that kind of affected a bit of your nostalgic take. But before we get into that, I want to uh, see uh, get Devin's response. Sure. Um, and, and especially uh, talk about also how, you know, you initially saw the movie kind of absent of any kind of critique or cultural knowledge because you saw an early cut of the film in order to design the poster. Yes, yeah, certainly. Uh, this movie sort of like... Uh family member to me in a lot of ways it it showed up early in my career as a graphic designer uh i was green by uh green is what we'd say someone who just hasn't done much yet so i had the opportunity to work on this film this was sort of my first opportunity to really put my stamp on a project and it turned out to be such a, a beautiful film that a lot of that was built into um already so for example uh that type treatment uh, that's so iconic to the film. That that's another thing that was baked into the DNA, as I said before. That was something that was a from Refn at the top brought that down to us and and made it a real um, for for guys that have were working on Fast and the Furious movies at the time. It was so challenging for us to even fathom a what would be perceived as a action film uh, with a with a pink cursive script type uh, right. face in it. So. What I say is a sort of like a family member is that I grew up near L.A. and I had loved film and everything. And, and I remember watching like Taxi Driver originally and how that was sort of a uh, painting of New York at a time uh, that I'd never get to experience. And so this felt like a great painting of Los Angeles um, at a time that I could experience. And to be a part of it in that way, I feel really uh, it's a, just a real cool feather in my hat to have uh, for my career and then my life going forward as a designer. So uh, do you do you think that by, you know, connecting your name and your brand with Drive, which is, you know, more than I mean, so some of uh, Devin's other work, he's done Suicide Squad, he's done Fantastic Beasts 1. But, you know, while those movies actually I would say probably the same probably goes for Suicide Squad because that poster is very visually evocative. But I guess what I'm saying is that when you say that you did design work on the poster for Drive, people already they immediately think cool, stylish. Like it's more than saying, "Oh, I did the poster work for like Moonlight or something." Yeah, working in LA, uh, everyone knows Drive uh, for the reason I said, and so it was sort of like you're a made man at that point when you've worked on a job like that that everyone can point to. Right. Uh, so having that just was rocket fuel for the rest of my career. So from 2011 on, it shaped where I what I could work on and who I could work with. Uh, so I have a lot of uh, admiration for the creatives there that put together such an amazing work uh, stylistically 
And a lot of that credit goes to uh, people on the set, like the unit photographers, uh, super talented, the shots that were provided to me to work with to put these images out into the world. Like a lot of that's baked in there. So uh, a really timeless film like that uh, just elevates everyone that gets to work on it. Right. It's you know, it's interesting that, you, that, like Austin, you'd said, you know, the L.A. is kind of a main character in this movie. And what was the movie you said about uh, New, New York? Like taxi that? Driver. Yeah, Taxi Driver. I mean, like, for me, I guess just watching it when I first saw it, I, uh, uh, like, I really don't get that impression, mainly. I mean, it, 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 there's cool shots of the city, but to me, as just a film fan who had not really spent that much time in L.A., I was just like, okay, it could be literally any city that has a skyline, you know? So I definitely feel like the, the uh, if you've ever spent a lot of time here and you're very familiar with it, yeah, it, like, comes off like, yeah, L.A. is a main character in the city. I guess just from my perspective as a person who hadn't been here. Yeah, and, and like... um uh, like Albert Brooks's character was a producer in the films, right? right? And in the in the pictures, and uh, Gosling's day job, you know, besides being a mechanic, is that he's a driver as a stuntman for the films. And you've got this guy Standard who was kind of in prison, and not that no other city has that, but it's just kind of this idea where people can kind of come and start their lives again. And you've got this nice mixture of. Hollywood in terms of the industry, but also with the non-Hollywood and maybe sort of like the seedy underbelly that's kind of there as well. And the interesting thing is I'm not so sure that it's like – it's not like some sort of historical icon that that historians can look back on and be like, ah, oh, that's what Los Angeles was like in 2010 or whatever. But it's a sort of like nostalgic vision that is like nostalgia of nostalgia because Refn is fucking Danish. He's not even American. Right. So there's something interesting about having an outsider's nostalgic infusion into a, a real city. And, and what's it nostalgia for? Like, would you say? Yeah, it's like it's like a nostalgia for the films that he had watched growing up. Mm. So um, I so just to cap off this discussion, um, I loved the film the first time I saw it. Actually, I think I've seen it three times, and I think like the way I mean to be honest, and I think probably most people's reactions like this is that it's a better experience depending on what kind of a viewing setting you're in. Because unfortunately, just due to time, I had to watch this on my laptop with like headphones on, and of course, you're not going to get stuck in that trance if you saw it in a dark theater. Even in that simplified viewing experience. I, it still resonated with me, and the minimalism and uh, the the nuance of Gosling's performance. You know, never, you know, I, I never was bored. I never felt myself uh, kind of like intellectually restless. You know, I found myself very easily getting lost in the characters, getting lost in the sexual tension between him and Irene. And so, yeah, I mean, I I think I. Am less of a Refn fan than Austin, although I have not seen the Neon Demon and Only God Forgives. But I, I did the poster for Only God Forgives as well. Oh, cool! <laughs> All right, well, um, let me go into a quick recap of the movie for those uh, people who don't uh, remember or who have not seen it as recently. Now, this is going to be a very quick recap because we're not going to really be focusing too much on plot points. But basically, a nameless stunt driver slash mechanic who moonlights as a getaway driver becomes involved with a woman, Irene, and her son, Benicio. The driver very subtly falls in love with Irene. When her husband, Standard, gets out of jail, he's blackmailed into a heist in order to pay back protection money to the Jewish mafia. Uh, if he doesn't do it, the mob will come after Irene and Benicio. So the driver decides to help 
uh, Standard do the job and ensure the protection of the family. The robbery goes south and Standard is killed. The driver soon realizes that him and Standard were pawns for a bigger heist, stealing a million dollars from the East Coast mob. So forced to tie up loose ends, the Jewish mob tries to kill the driver and all of his associates, but the driver gets to them first. Ultimately, he liberates Irene and Benicio from their association with the mob and does not return to them and pursue his love for Irene. He just kind of drives off into the sunset. End of movie. <laughs> I love his first interaction with uh, the, the boy. What is it? Benicio? And he's like, hey, you want a toothpick? <laughs> as, as in like this dude clearly does not hang out with children. But there seems to be that in human interaction, interaction implies a two-way sort of reciprocal nature. So – yeah, in a basic sense, anthropologically, I think that does kind of hold for most human interaction, if not all. But there is something unique about L.A., and I do think that you do see that in Drive. There is. It does kind of get set up that this is who I am. Uh, I only work in these transactional settings. Anything outside of that, that's not part of the rules. Fuck you. Like when the dude comes up to him at the diner, that's, this isn't part of how the rules of the game are set up. So fuck you. Don't. Don't get involved. You know, he says, what, I'll, I'll, I'll step away right now or I'll kick your fucking teeth, teeth in or whatever. Yeah, <laughs> which is an amazing scene. But um, and then and then again, I think if you were to view the whole film from within that framework, you get it again. The the transaction that he gets involved in to try to help standard out. And the only reason he's doing that is because of this maybe non-transactional relation, like the real human relation that he has with Irene and Benicio. So he has to engage again in a transactional nature. And, and then by engaging in that transactional nature, it sort of, uh, it sullies the non-transactional or maybe the more sort of pure reciprocal. I don't know. Um, I'm kind of just riffing on what you said, but there is something there. In another movie, another movie in which you see that, which is not an L.A. movie, but it's a movie about uh, transitory and transactional relationships, is Up in the Air. Up in the Air is not a L.A. movie necessarily. I think it actually mostly takes place in New York. But um, it, just as a visual trope, I was wondering – that, that's kind of why, why that was put in my mind. Well, also, the um, it's interesting because you're talking about uh, Ryan Gosling's character in the – his transactions but every other person in the movie besides the irene is like is like pretty much exploiting each other you know you got brian cranston who literally every he's always talking about how he's screwing over people you know he's like oh, or he got right. a better deal you know uh and then uh and then albert brooks is also trying to use basically brian cranston and ryan gosling and then hellboy is doing the same thing um, hellboy <laughs> uh, but but yeah so Kind of like you said, I hadn't really thought about it in this way, but yeah, R Ryan Gosling also is doing that, but just in a more very cold way. He's not really trying well, no, to exploit people. I think people. Ryan Gosling is the is the antithesis of that. I think he's the authentic one. I, right? I'm not saying he's trying to screw people over. I'm saying that he is very transactional with his human relationships. But then, like Devin just said, the, or Austin just said, the you know the uh, Irene inspires him to do it out of love as, as opposed to money. Yeah, maybe maybe that's it. Maybe his we're introduced to him as a transactional character to kind of like continue this motif and riff on it and press it till it probably dies. <laughs> but, so, let's say, so let's say he starts off as a transactional character, but he meets Irene and Benicio. He wants to become more than that. He wants that genuine reciprocity. So maybe he's not the pure uh, non-transactional being, but rather Irene and Benicio are. But the problem is, is just like everybody else in the movie has to die, um, Ryan Gosling 
uh, or the driver, he doesn't have a name, kid, the driver, he doesn't get Irene and Benito. He doesn't get outside of that transaction because he himself is still kind of like we talked about in our Logan movie when we did the uh, Wisecrack edition. He's a man of violence. And so there's that scene in the elevator when he finally does kiss Irene and it's just before he was talking with her about how there's this money, we can go ahead and we can get out of here and I can come with you and I can protect you. He wants something more. Yeah, I think the man of violence things works really well. And I was, I was just going to bring that bring this up later, but I think this is a good time to bring it up. So the scorpion on the back of his jacket, super, super iconic. And he actually mentions toward the end of the movie, I think it's in voiceover when he's about to have the standoff with Albert Brooks, who, by the way, is so good in this movie. Oh, so uh, good. No yeah. eyebrows. Um, but he, he brings up, he says, have you ever heard the tale of the scorpion and the frog? And just for those of you who have not heard of it, uh, I'm going to just do a a little summary of this uh, fairy tale. So basically, a scorpion asks a frog to take him across a river. The frog says, I'm not going to do that because you'll sting me. And the scorpion replies, well, if I did that, then we'd both drown. I would doom both of us. So the frog decides to take him across the river, but the scorpion stings him anyway. And as they're both sinking, the frog asks the scorpion, why did you do this? And the scorpion just says, because it's in my nature to do so. And so I really like Austin's point here that that's the, yeah, in that elevator scene, and one of the reasons why I think it's so iconic and it resonates so much is because we see an expression of his very authentic love for Irene, but at the same time, we see that he is the scorpion. He is a man of violence. He And that is why at the end, even though Standard is dead, even though the mob is, you know, off his back, he decides not to go back to the apartment to, you know, swoop Irene off her feet and the drive into the sunset together because he knows that, uh, you know, he's the scorpion and it's in his nature to be violent. And uh, just like, yeah, just like Logan at the end of Logan, uh, the kids, I can only use my violence to liberate them. But beyond that, they have to go on without me. Then why didn't he take the money? Because, well, because because then the East Coast mob would go after him. Oh, so that's the only reason? It's not because he's kind of a good guy still? Well, the thing is, I don't think that Gosling is a good guy. Uh, There's this really interesting scene I hadn't noticed, actually, except for in this viewing. He's sitting on the sofa with Benitz. Is it Benitz or Benicio? I can't remember, but Benitz. I just Benicio, like, as in Del Toro. It is. That's what I I thought. Okay, so so he's sitting on the sofa with him, and they're watching a cartoon. And Gosling says uh, to the little boy, he says, oh, is that a good guy or a bad guy? And the little boy goes, oh, it's a bad guy. And Gosling says, how do you know? And the guy and the little boy goes, because he's a shark. And then Gosling is like, well, how can you tell? Does he look like a bad guy? And the, the idea is he doesn't look like a bad guy. Gosling, good looking, clean cut. Um, he's obviously he's got some sort of care for this woman and her child, but he's still a fucking shark. And he's still he's a bad guy just because he is a shark. And so that is another right metaphor. after that, like he also says, can't can't uh, a bad guy be be good or, or, or can't a shark be good? I right. Think he says, right. Right. And yeah. So there's almost like this yeah, redemption right. story as like he knows he's a shark, but he wants to be good. But in terms of the shark thing, like he's not predatory. How, does he see himself as a hero or how, how aware is Gosling of himself? How what does the driver well, I- know of what he is? I think I think that there's a lot that's obviously not told, and I actually have a sort of like interesting sort of psychoanalytic reading on it that I think that he has some uh, some daddy issues that I think it's like obviously he's like alone, he has no family because there's there's some amazing shots that Refn sets up that show Standard and Benitz uh, or Benicio kind of in the background, blurred out, um, and then Gosling is in the forefront or vice versa. And so you constantly have this shadow of this father-son relationship 
that contrasts with the driver. And so I think that there's something interesting in that. And I think that the metaphor of the shark is less about him being a predator and more about him being a lone hunter. And it's the idea that even though science, I guess, now is telling us that maybe sharks do hunt in packs, but generally speaking, it's understood, and, and at least in popular culture, and I'm sure Refin um, would, would understand it this way, sharks are generally understood as being lone hunters. They're on their own. They don't have a social group. They tend to do their own thing, and if you get too close, they'll bite you. I think that kind of fits. <laughs> There's also is, – is there not also like a sacrificial nature of the driver? So you know, not only does he more or less sacrifice himself or he – ingratiates himself into very compromising situations in order to save Irene and Benicio. But also like his his job as a stunt driver is literally that he sacrifices himself for the shots of a movie. He's also super forgiving of Shannon, who is by all means a degenerate gambler. And uh, even Shannon says, well, first of all, I really like this for two reasons. One, when Shannon says, oh, the driver, he doesn't call him the driver. He says he walked into the shop four or five years ago out of nowhere. And then he said he was hired on the spot and he took half the wages of everyone else and never said anything. And I've been exploiting him ever since. It's kind of like the man with no name. Yeah, exactly. It's like a mix of the man and no name. There's a little bit of like John Wayne from The Searchers and that ending. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, Shannon, Shannon becomes his sort of surrogate in, in a way. Yeah, there are a lot of weird father figures. So there's Shannon and then, uh, as you said, Standard. Yeah, that's really interesting. Yeah, it makes me wonder what's going on in Refn's own life. Now, one of the things <laughs> – because, because uh, uh, Devin, you might be able to speak to this. I've heard this and I swear I heard Refn say it in an interview, but apparently um, Refn is colorblind. And so that's why his films are so uh, stark in their color palettes rather than – yeah, rather than in-betweens. I don't know if, if anyone else has heard this. What was the film before uh... – because Refn did the Pusher trilogy, and then he did... Okay, so Valhalla is what I'm thinking Valhalla of. Valhalla Rising? Yeah, the redness of that flick. I mean, only someone that's colorblind could make that flick that monochrome, I feel like. <laughs> <get away> with <laughs> <it>. <laughs> yeah, so I, I feel like there's a lot that he uh, imbues into his films that are personal. So it makes me think that, okay, so if he's colorblind, and so he's just unabashedly like, I got to make fucking films that are super bright so that I can see them. Um, I also wonder if he's like... My, I got some daddy issues, <laughs> so I'm going to put all of that shit into or, uh, you know, like his film Neon Demon. It's all about like the fashion industry and sort of um, the, 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 the sort of consumptive nature of Los Angeles fashion industry. Like he's I think he's working out his own demons in his films in a very explicit way. One thing I want to bring up that could possibly be tied back to the conversation about Drive as a piece of L.A. cinema. Uh, I wanted to talk about the sound design um, and how. So not only, obviously, is it mostly motivated by a very loud pop soundtrack, but there's something very deliberate in how there's almost no ambience. L.A. is so uncharacteristically quiet. Um, so there's like the scene where he's getting groceries and he sees Irene with an overheated car. They're basically, you know, in a parking lot for a busy Los Angeles street and you can hear no other cars. You can hear no other ambience. All you hear... And it's, it, it's very, like, deliberately meditative. All you can hear is, like, slightly the, the, the steam coming out of the front of her, of the hood of her car. And um, I wanted to know if you guys had any insights on, you know, uh, not only how this affects the film aesthetically, but does it have any greater commentary into L.A. as a setting? I think it has, it's more uh, 
about the character uh, of Ryan Gosling's character, because I also noticed some sound design stuff too, like when he's driving in the car, it's just him, and you know, every once in a while he'll pass a lamppost, but there's like a very distinct, like a like a sound design thing that you know that that doesn't make that doesn't make that noise when that, you pass that it. The whole opening is interior of the car by design it's oh yeah not, not a continuous shot but all set in the car because you're kind of getting in his head right mm-hmm. you're kind of getting in his zone and kind of his, his and kind of the is music is yeah the, his is all supposed to be i feel like you're in his more ryan gosling's point of view in mind and so the sound design really has to do with that so maybe there is ambience on those la streets but it's just like he's so in the zone that it's like the sound design isn't reflecting it i agree too i remember i had I had a strange moment just a couple years ago. I was driving down the 405 north, kind of around LAX area, uh, where the, what is it, the 405 that kind of, what is it, uh, veers into the, God, is it the like 10 or the o- 110? The 605? Well, the 10 or the 110, and you start to like head down towards downtown coming off the 405 there. I, I can't remember We're now. We're getting very LA right now. <laughs> yeah, very, very LA. But uh, I started, I started kind of like merging, and you know, you're on this massive fucking five lane highway, and I just remember how loud my radio all of a sudden became to me, and how loud the tire tread underneath came to me, and then how loud the cars passing me at 90 miles an hour. Uh, how loud the sound was that they were emitting. And I started thinking to myself, holy shit, man, like this city is so fucking loud. Like all the time, you're constantly driving. And so clearly this movie is not trying to create some sort of like pure representation of what LA is like. It's just absolute tone and mood. And I love what what you guys were just saying about it being about the driver's it's it's all his mindset. It's his mood. It's his tone that sort of becomes the frame uh, into which the viewer is is brought into what L.A. then becomes. It's not L.A. per se. It's L.A. through the look or through the experience of the kid, the driver. Yeah, so uh, it, I agree 100% with everything you guys have been saying. And if I may just reconnect this to my uh, thesis about L.A. movies – being about kind of uh, so well okay like if we're to believe that this movie and I think that the first act of the film is definitely characterized as you know basically these lonely people connecting or you know like trying to connect and stuff like that and I and I think that if we're saying once again that like LA is a lonely city there is something to be said not only of putting us in the driver's headspace just as a matter of increasing subjectivity but also the idea of like you know being very disconnected from your outside environment you know like uh, in in a sense it gives you watching this movie gives you the phenomenon of walking down the street with like your earbuds in listening to pop music really loud which and, and you know which is um you know it's something that all of us do but it is very um isolate it's very isolating that's and and this also happens in the uh Burbank pawn shop robbery like you know you, literally you can hear footsteps is really all the ambience that you can hear and so once again, for a movie that's about pop, you know, listening to pop music and about people trying to connect in a perhaps an alienating city, I think that that aesthetic choice, that sound design choice really puts you in that headspace. And I think is one of the reasons why it, it's just so evocative and uh, really yeah, and how it affects me as someone who has moved to L.A. Yeah, um, this was, you said, like the, the sixth or fifth time or something like that you'd seen it, right? Did, was it different this time than when you saw it when you had first moved to L.A.? You said you saw it three times, right? I think there? I'd seen it three times. And oh, then the first time I saw it, uh, well, I mean, more to Ryan's point, I definitely recognized more locations now. 
Uh, I think the first time I saw it, the only real location I recognized was that part where Ryan Gosling is driving past the Hollywood Bowl. It's a very short shot, but I mean, yeah, that, yeah, that, when he's yeah, when he's getting off the the what is the it, the one hundred and one or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so I definitely recognized that, and then of course all the aerial shots and stuff like that. Um, but do you get as lost in the movie now as you did the first time, Austin, or even the second or third time? Oh man, I did last night. As soon as uh, as Emily, our producer, emailed me uh, and said that we were going to do this when we were going to do this, I was like, "All right, I'm going to lock myself away." And I turned my lights off and I put my earbuds in, and I totally locked in. I mean, I was in it. Like I, uh, my my friend, one of my best friends, and I, we have this thing where we call it a deep end night. Um, did you guys see the movie Deep On? I did not. No, I'm not familiar with that. Absolutely fantastic! It was a, it was a. Oh God, what did it? I don't know if it won the the Palme d'Or or if it won the uh, one of the others, but it won, I think it won the Palme d'Or a couple of years ago. It can, but anyway, it's um, it's a fantastic movie. But there's this main character, and one night he kind of just gets drunk by himself and does like a dance where he's just going crazy, like dancing and listening to music and shit like that. So every once in a while, my friend and I were like, "Oh, we'll do, we'll have a deep on night." Well, I had a deep on night the other night about like a week ago, and when I was watching the movie last night, I was like, "God damn it!" I wish I was listening to this soundtrack because like mm. it would have it would have just put me in that mood, you know, yeah. where you're just vibing and it's just you are just feeling the flows of life. That and it's soundtrack. it's almost um, yeah. I, the, I the, this say, soundtrack. I, I was going to say about the soundtrack. I have oh, a yeah. six CD changer in my car that doesn't get accessed anymore. But one of those six is still the burned copy of Drive from 2011, and it's never going away, probably. Oh, wait, but did, did Refn burn it for you and say, I need you to listen to this while you're designing the poster? <laughs> uh, Speaking God of that, uh, Jared, have you ever read this? Like, I guess he did an interview, Refn did, about about conceiving Drive. Is this the New York Times interview? It's, it's where he talks about getting a ride home from Ryan Gosling um, late at night from a restaurant. Yeah. You know, and then... I actually, I wrote down some stuff from that. Just for any, anyone that out there hasn't seen it, basically, he need, he doesn't drive. That's another ironic thing. Refn doesn't, literally doesn't drive, or can't drive. <laughs> That's true. And uh, so he got a, he got this awkward ride home from uh, Ryan Gosling, and he was taking him all the way to Santa Monica. pre-Uber. Yeah, pre-Uber. <laughs> and, uh, uh, and basically, they were just sitting there in silence, and then Aria Speedwagon's... I can't fight this feeling anymore came on and and a uh, reference says he started to cry and then start singing it and then he says he just screams in ryan gosling's face i'm reading from the article now i got it i got it uh he said what and then i say i know what drive is it's about a man who drives around at night listening to pop music and that's his emotional relief so is that what you got from this movie well Yes, okay. <laughs> in, in so many ways. Yes, I mean, yes. I, I, that's kind of what I got too. It was just funny that that's the how it, well. I don't this see movie the came pop, about. I, I mean, I, I guess I probably disagree. I think that with Reffin, <laughs> with well, the creator. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm that much death, of a douchebag. <laughs> well, death I, I want to hear. Author, right? I want to hear what Austin says first. No, no, no. I was going to say death of the author, right, Jared? <laughs> I mean, that, yeah. I, I, I actually had to explain that to someone yesterday, but anyway, yeah. Um, I mean, look, like, I think that does the movie suggest to me that the only way that Ryan Gosling's character can feel is to listen to pop music? I mean, this is a very kind of maybe overthinking answer, but I mean, I don't think we're meant to believe that the music is 
within the diegesis. Like I was about to say that. You yeah. never see him. Like all, The only time you see him fuck with the radio is with the police scanners and yeah. then trying to listen to basketball. Anybody listening to sports, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right. He never is like, all right, I'm going to put on this. And, and it awesome seems like song. what drives him is definitely uh, saving the family, saving Irene and Benicio. Sure. But that music does narrate the film as well. There's the key track about the hero is, I think, a direct re- reference to him. Yeah, no, and obviously the, the I can't I don't want to underplay the importance of the soundtrack because I think it is you know one of the defining characteristics and it sets the tone and it sets the way that we interpret the character. But that's different than saying that the character himself can only find meaning from listening to pop music. Sure, yeah, I mean, but you know how scripts develop. You get an idea. <laughs> oh no, then... I know, I know. Yeah, that's what I'm and saying. So, I'm saying that that but... was like a seed of an idea that you know ended up getting developed, and you know maybe some yeah. things changed, and then we have a movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, and I wonder, and then this is me just totally bullshitting now, but so if we're going to say that the film takes place, uh, let's say, through the lens of the driver, then that means that the soundtrack that we hear, that also means that the sound design of like the whooshing of, of light poles passing, that all of that is also supposed to be within the framework of the driver. So oh, maybe I, then I from that saying. sense, in, in a meta sense, in a uh, – in a, in a, uh, in like a framework, maybe in that sense, that's that's what we could say informs that sort of original vision that Refn was talking about when uh, when he was saying that. Maybe, I, and that's me stretching really far, but maybe that's the way Refn wants to kind of think through it and and, and work through it. That the soundtrack. And that the content, because if we're going to say that this is a film that is, and a lot of people criticize Reffin for this, is, is all style, no substance, then that means then let's just look at all the style and let that inform any of the substance that comes out of it. And if that's the case, then that means that the soundtrack, the sound design, the framing of the shots, the particular streets that are shot on, the the environment. I mean, he's driving through Santa Clarita at some point. Maybe all of that, um, all of that is is sort of all informed by the narrator who is the driver uh, his disposition. Yeah. I Yeah, okay, I definitely agree with that. That movie's been made, too. The movie that you want, uh, Baby Driver. Jared. Yeah, Baby Driver. Exactly. <laughs> oh, I, haven't, yeah. I haven't seen it yet. <laughs> there you go. Oh, uh, yeah. It's no, that's, that's literally what, uh, that's what Baby does, is he drives <laughs> around and, and walks around and listens to pop music. Maybe Edgar Wright based Baby Driver off of that interview with Nicholas Wynn in reference. <laughs> maybe. Yeah, maybe. Maybe. <laughs> I, I also did want to say I think it's interesting that the, the, the Refn has a very particular directorial style, especially in uh, Demon, Neon Demon, uh, Only God Forgives, and Drive. Refn, there's like no happy accidents, I feel. Everything is choreographed. The camera movements are perfect. You know, if there's a slide shot, it is like perfect. Like there's that one shot when when Gosling is in the hotel or when he's in his room, I mean, and he's getting ready and the camera starts moving before he does, but it's moving at this this like snail's pace and it's moving laterally. And then all of a sudden you're like, Gosling is going to follow this camera movement. And he does just perfectly. And then he kind of like walks towards the door that's on the other side of the room. And it's just perfectly timed. Um, I don't know. He just – he doesn't waste anything. Everything is wonderful. Everything is choreographed. Everything is framed perfectly. I think he's a wonderful director. Yeah, well, that – also the shot that we were talking about a little bit earlier, one of my favorite push-ins and very graceful is when Ryan Gosling says, how about you shut the fuck up or I'll kick your teeth in? Yeah. You know, it's it, – and uh, especially since, you know, we had seen pretty static camera angles up into that point and, like, once it erupts into violent speech, it just, like, the whole aesthetic of the camera movement changes and it makes it such an impactful moment.
So the last thing I want to bring up is the characterization of violence in the movie. And uh, from some of the reviews that I've been reading, this is definitely the most divisive aspect of the movie. A lot of critics have been saying that the violence is so over the top and just seems out of place in the movie. And it definitely seems to be a very strong choice. I mean, just to list com- some of the things that happen, uh, the driver hammers a guy's hand. Uh, Irene, even just smaller things like Irene slaps the driver and then like just an eruption in an otherwise very quiet scene when he offers her the million dollars. Uh, there's, of course, the scene in the elevator that we've already spoken about. Albert Brooks, when he uh, kills the guy in the pizza shop, he stabs the guy in the eye with a fork and then a knife to the throat. Um, then, of course, when Albert Brooks kills Shannon and uh, oh, that one's the worst one, man. Yeah. Slits, so, slits his wrist, and then that woman's head get, literally gets blown to bits. Really, oh, right, right, right. right. Yeah, through yeah, the yeah. Through the yeah. Christina Hendricks. Yeah. So, what do you guys make of this very deliberate decision? I mean, is it just more of him as just kind of selling the point in a very over, very overt way of him being the scorpion? Um, and and how does this connect to? Because you know, I, the only one of the only other Refn movies I've seen is Bronson, which is literally about a guy who's like a violence performance artist and um i was wondering is there an element of glorifying violence here because violence and i don't mean that in like a, oh the movie's doing us like an, a social disservice or anything but i'm just wondering if there's that kind of fetish fetishization of the fact that violence can transform a situation or um transform people's lives or people's uh dispositions well i think it's two things uh kind of cynically <laughs> um like w- w- one one i think is just Reffin being like well mankind's nature is super violent mm-hmm. end of end of story period mm-hmm. and then another is Reffin just being like oh this will look cool <laughs> you know oh, well that's of course of course that's an element <laughs> to mean, it right right but i yeah. think that's a big no that's important to bring up it. important to bring up <laughs> i gotta take um if we step back from the film itself and we see the the climate of films at the time. And if we use their analogy of the scorpion and the frog, you can see the setup for this film being a frog, a Fast and the Furious movie for people to come expecting an action flick. And Mm. and then the Joe, Joe public gets the scorpion with all this violence as opposed to car explosions you're getting christina hendrix explosions so, so. they are fucking with us <laughs> t- i think he's awesome. just fucking with the the yeah yeah fucking with yeah. the and, general populace. and what and what did you expect because it's just part of my nature um <laughs> which might also be interesting i don't know if this is true but again this kind of struck me last night there's something interesting in albert brooks at one point when he's talking to the kid about how he used to make films he describes the films that he used to make he said sexy stuff i didn't think they were very good I someone once if, described them as European. <laughs> someone once described <laughs> them as weeks. European. I wonder if Refn is playing with that. You know, uh, that, that's that that's his films. They're sexy. They're European. People don't. They're they're not very good. It's like a false modesty. It's a wink, wink. Like he know he they were they were good. Maybe I don't know, but it doesn't matter because it was sexy and colorful and stylish and bold. And he's a fucking scorpion. I don't know. I mean, I, I, I disagree with that just because I feel like his movie, he never made like super mainstream movies like. No, or, no, but. Or I, even I, sexy. Well, that's a. Con- no, his movie. movies are always sexy. That's a contrast between <laughs> uh, just markets like American market versus European market. Like when you're doing commercials, don't make it too artsy fartsy European. Like that's just a commentary on 
um, where that's at for me. I get I get that a lot. So one of the things, uh, one of my favorite scenes is when Standard and the driver meet for the first time. Standard just got out of prison, and that scene is just soaking with aggressive tension from Standard. All because of Oscar Isaac. What a good performance. Oh, I love, yeah, Oscar Isaac's one of my favorites. He wasn't really on the map yet either at that point. I know. Yeah, yeah this is, uh, what was the big one? Was Inside it Ex Machina? Inside Davis. Oh. Anyway, um, but then once the mob beats him within an inch of his life, they become friends very quickly. And uh, I didn't know, and I was just thinking, does that fit into the discussion about violence, about how, in a sense, it did a positive thing? Because, like, you know, already in one, like, and it's only, like, two scenes apart from each other when that happens. But I don't know. Maybe that's stretching a bit. All right, so let's go around the table, even though there's no table, and see what is everyone's favorite lines, favorite scenes, or maybe just some funny insights you might have. Ryan, let's go with you first. Well, I thought... uh uh, amazing special effect when Christina Hendricks's brain uh, got blown off with a shotgun. That was a pretty. That was my jaw on the floor uh, moment of the movie. When I saw that in theaters, I laughed <laughs> because it was just so. That was the first real explosion of violence in the whole movie, right? The first, yeah, the the, the one that was that extreme. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that was just like such a curveball tonally <laughs> that I was. Yeah, I was. My jaw was on the so far down on the floor. I had to laugh. I mean, it's not a scene or a line because my favorite scene is the elevator scene. I just think it's. From from the second from before they get in to when they're in the elevator to the scene when the door or to the bit where the door closes and she's on the outside and he's on the inside and we're on the inside with him. I just think that's that's the story right there. It, and I think that's fucking beautiful. But I think one of my favorite things about this movie is silence. There's very little dialogue. It's people looking at each other and they're saying everything with their eyes or with a smile or just simply because of the the point in the story that we're at, we know exactly what's going on. And to me, that's what's so interesting about this film is it doesn't have to be dialogue heavy. There's no exposition really. I mean, at one point, I think I did, I was like, oh, yeah, you can tell that the, 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 I mean, it was a little bit like expositional. Like, I can't remember what it was, but I was like, yeah, whatever, but I can forgive it. Um, but for the most part, it's nothing. It's just people looking at each other. And now it gets worse in Only God Forgives and uh, Neon Demons, probably worse in Only God Forgives of the the, late, the later three films, but I love it. I, I think there's something so powerful about that. I think from an acting perspective, that's one of the hardest things to do is to stand there and be still and look at somebody without blinking or without moving or without saying anything or without twitching, and there's something so powerful in it. And uh, so for me, that's one of the things I love so much about this movie. I, I have a commentary on what you just said, Austin. I, you know... I I watch a ton of movies, right? And I feel like around 2011, when this movie came out, me and uh, uh, me and my friend Greg, we we coined this term, the blank stare indie movie. And it was these movies <laughs> that would come out that you know were very much like like all right, you know, very sparse script, but we're gonna have lots of uh, of probably handheld shots of people staring off into space, thinking, and that's our movie. And the example of this is uh, Sofia Coppola's somewhere. Oh yeah, right? yeah. Some Somewhere's the ultimate blank stare <laughs> in your movie, you know? It's like nothing fucking happens in that movie. People just stare out of windows and then, you know, for like minutes on end. Gus Van Sant does some, but his are a little bit more weirder. Have you seen David Lowry's A Ghost Story yet? No, but I, that looked like a good uh, good example. Oh, yeah. yeah <laughs> there's, some, the there's, some, there's like a nine-minute scene where Rooney Mara's eating a pie. Nice. <laughs> That's it. I mean, I, I, I made... 
I made a buddy of mine watch Jean Dillman recently by Chantel Ackerman. It's like a fucking three-hour uh, film about a woman in her apartment just doing like daily chores and shit. I love that stuff, man. Like, give, hey, give look, me more th- of that. Th- th- that was kind of my point earlier. Was that was that I love that shit too. I really do. Like, like when it's done amazing, like and with an amazing filmmaker, it's it, you. There's that's an awesome aesthetic. But I like I really when one I can tell is just. They're just trying to do that as an aesthetic, like just having the long shots of people staring, and there's literally nothing behind it. I, I, there's that is hell on earth. It's to so me. hard to pull off. So <laughs> yeah. that's what Drive has gone for. It. It's one of the few times when it's actually successful. Oh yeah, so it's great. Bless their heart. Bless them. <laughs> there's there's definitely a big there's part of Austin in me. Like when I, I would love for the next X Men movie to just be. Uh, Charles and Eric playing chess for two hours. <laughs> oh, dude, right? Awesome Wouldn't that, would that be the be? best X Men movie? My, my dinner with. Well, Andre like, have style. you seen Legion? No, I have not. I have not yet. See, it's the best of all the Marvel properties out there because it's not a fucking Marvel movie or a TV series in any way. It's so unique. It's so different. I think Dan Stevens is a phenomenal actor. And it, it's such an interesting take on what the Marvel Universe could be. I'm telling you, some indie director out there needs to do exactly what you just said. A chess match between just two characters, and that's it. Just and that's the Magneto Marvel Magneto versus Xavier, chess battle, 2K18. Someone make it I happen. It. I love it. All right, moving on to Devin's favorite scene. Uh, I just want to break the mold a little bit and bring the attention back to the typeface that made this all possible minstrel yeah, yeah, yeah. minstrel typeface it was working real hard even before drive was a thing at local salons and auto body shops throughout LA and it's going to continue to do so for many years to come so god bless that too with that i think we will end this episode thank you guys so much for listening this is now the second episode of the wisecrack movie podcast that we haven't named yet hopefully by the third episode we will have a name and uh, please make sure to check out our other podcasts. We've got one on Rick and Morty called The Squanch. We've got one on South Park called Respect Our Authorita. And, of course, there's the Thug Notes Get Lit podcast where Greg, a.k.a. Sparky Sweets, breaks down some of the world's best literature. I want to thank uh, Devin Gibbs, our special guest, for uh, joining us. Thank you so much, Devin. Thanks, guys. And uh, also to Ryan and Austin. We will be back soon with the next movie on the Unnamed Wisecrack podcast. Peace late, everybody. Goodbye from Hollywood, California.